Hi, and welcome to another edition of Jewish Thought Flow. This is your host, Avi Cohen. Along with the new co-host, Mutti Cohen. Yeah, that's right. We have a co-host trying to make this podcast more exciting, more stimulating, and hopefully more enjoyable for you, the listening audience. Today, we're going to talk about slavery. The definition of slavery that we're going to be using for this podcast is owning another human being. And the question, is that inherently immoral? And does the Torah truly hold of it? It definitely seems that the Torah holds of it. We have the Avais owning slaves. We have throughout the Talmud people owning slaves. And there's definitely no Isser in the Torah of owning a slave. There's certainly no shortage of halachic literature about how to treat a slave. But there is no halacha that says you can't own one. Is that the Torah's tacit approval of the institution? Or perhaps, as some want to suggest, is that Torah's attempt to correct a moral wrong that is already in existence? Well, David Lichtenstein in his podcast headlines took up this subject and took the approach that Torah was not approving of slavery, but rather was trying to take slavery, which was an inherently immoral concept, and try to improve it because it was unable to eradicate it in the first place. This isn't the the first person that I've heard take this approach. I've heard this approach on the Ben Shapiro show. Ben Shapiro commonly uses this attempt to explain different Torah laws which seem at odds with modern values. And the question is, does that actually fit? Is that actually what the Torah is telling us? Or is that what modern values are telling us and we're trying to fit that into the Torah? Right, so we're going to take that slowly. We're going to break down his arguments and we're going to try to present a case to you arguing that that is not what Torah wants to tell us. In fact, Torah wants to tell us that slavery is in fact amoral and correct institution that a Jew should partake of. First, I do want to address something that Double Lichtenstein mentioned in his podcast. His podcast is titled Slavery and Racism. It was from a couple of weeks ago, and we're going to play you the audio of something that David said, which I found to be quite disturbing, and I think you, the listener, will also find it to be quite disturbing. And I want to start off by saying, I believe that any Yid, any Jew, who saw a policeman in Minneapolis with his foot on someone's neck for nine minutes had to hop a bissel of tracel because there used to be your grandfather's neck that the policeman's foot was on. Oh, boy. When I showed this clip to my wife, the first thing my wife said was, did he just compare it to the Holocaust? And I'm not sure if he did compare it to the Holocaust. He said, my grand- he said your grandfather. My grandfather was raised in Boston and never had any police foot on his neck. Maybe that's because he's white, but that never happened to him. Uh, so I don't know what he was referencing. I assume he was referencing the European pre-war grandfather, you know, in the Holocaust or in the Russian regime, uh, different places like that. And he tried to compare that to George Floyd dying under the knee of a police officer. Just quick, for all you non-Yiddish speakers, Chaba Bissel Tracel means it should give you a little shiver. Give you goosebumps, as they'd say in English. Um, the the comparison is is bothersome at many levels. Uh, let's just start with with who George Floyd was. This wasn't your forget a, a upstanding citizen, which many of the Jews who suffered during anti anti Semitic uh, regimes were. This was a, a, a terrible human being by all accounts. Yeah, I mean, he was uh, his worst offense was he entered a pregnant woman's home. And used her fetus against her. He pointed a gun at her stomach 
robbing her. There was also a child in the house, a one-year-old in the house, and he robbed her at gunpoint by pointing a gun at her stomach. He was also arrested on drug charges numerous times. And in case you want to say maybe he'd gotten his life back in order, during this arrest, he was being arrested for a felony of trying to pass a counterfeit bill. Additionally, he was high on numerous drugs at the time. Methamphetamine, fentanyl, I think they found drugs on him. Furthermore, there was no evidence of racism on the hand of the cop. There was no evidence of premeditated murder. In fact, they were speaking to him quite politely prior to his resisting arrest and refusing to get into the police car. I would say anybody who could look at George Floyd dying and think of his grandfather, that person should hop a pistol trisel. I agree. A general rule of thumb, don't make comparisons to the Holocaust unless the thing you're comparing is going to be one of the worst atrocities in human history, because that's what the Holocaust was. Especially for a firm Jew to make such a comparison between George Floyd and Jews facing persecution for their religion, it's, it's just really bothersome and, and quite frankly disgusting. Yeah, and this is no disrespect to Rabbi Lichtenstein. I'm saying he's a he's a he's a He he cares about learning, cares about spreading Yiddishkeit. But I think he was just way off base over here. So let's now turn to the actual podcast and see if we can address this point. So Rabbi Lichtenstein attempted to argue that the Torah does not really hold of slavery. So what do we do with all the passages that seem to suggest that the Avos had slaves? The Torah's laws about slaves. The, in the Gemara, the Tanayim and the Amarayim had slaves. What do we do about all that? So let's start with his, his overall point and the reason he wants to say that the Torah does not hold up slavery. The Torah is all about Rachman. Every There are so many laws in the Torah which, which are, go directly towards this, uh, this, this trait of mercy. The examples given in the podcast were Tzar Balachayim, the causing of undue pain to animals, uh, Shiloh HaKain, sending away the mother bird before taking the egg as an act of mercy towards the mother, Isa Vespanai, which is the Isser of killing the mother and the son animal, which you would be eaten on the same day. These are all examples where the Torah showed so much sensitivity towards the feelings of even animals. So now to say that it would allow slavery, the owning of a human being, which seems to be an incredibly cruel thing towards a human, that just seems like a contradiction. Yeah, um, and he brings support for this idea that even though the Torah seems to have mitzvahs related to slavery, that doesn't mean the Torah is approving slavery— from the mitzvah of Eshesifas Tar. Eshesifas Tar is when you go to war and you see a beautiful lady and you desire her. And the Torah tells you, don't abuse her out there in the field. Rather, there's a process you have to do. You have to bring her into your home. You have to try to convert her. You have to marry her. But the Torah tells us very clearly in the Gemara that Dabra Torah connected Yitzhar. The Torah is talking to the Yitzhara. Meaning, this is not something that a righteous Jew would do. This is something that a man in the battlefield caught in his Yetzirah, in his desires, has no recourse but to avoid this situation by following Tar's guidelines on how to curb this desire for this lady. But it is not something the Tar wants you to do if you had the option. This isn't the only example he gave. He also gave examples of Gitin and Tshuva, which is divorces and repentance. Both of these are obviously only in situations which the Torah does not want to come about. You don't want, the Torah does not want us to be fighting with our wives. The Torah does not want us to be doing a virus, obviously. And yet, the Torah has these two institutions, which are obviously what we're going to call bidiavid situations. Not an ideal. Uh, another example he gave was polygamy, 
which the Torah allows. The, the ability to marry multiple wives, the Torah allows it, but it's very clear that Judaism as a whole has not held of it as an institution. We even have a cherem, a ban, uh, coming out in around the 10th century on having more than one wives, which was accepted in the Ashkenazi communities. And even in the Sephardic communities, in general, uh, polygamy is frowned upon. Right. I mean, the uh, paradigm of marriage is Adam and Chava, which is a, a, a marriage of, of two people, a, a husband and a wife, a singular wife. Also, there's a there's a verse in Micha, which a lot of Mepharshim explained that when he he rebuked them for having taken on foreign wives, what he actually was referencing is they're taking on more than one wife. We also know the Torah references the second wife as the Tzara because it's painful to be wife number two. So all of these mitzvahs suggest, or all these sources suggest, that there are certain mitzvahs in the Torah that perhaps are not meant to be practiced a priori, but only if you get into an unfortunate situation, this is how the Torah tries to get you out. So I think he was trying to say by slavery, it's the same thing. Slavery was an institution. The Torah couldn't just eradicate it. That's how the economy ran. So the Torah wanted to take an immoral institution and perfect it by forcing the owner to be kind. But ultimately, I think, David would say the Torah wants us to not practice slavery, which is why we haven't practiced slavery, in his opinion, since at least the early Middle Ages. This concept that a institution that the Torah gives us can be specifically coming to contrast with a existing system which may have less bearing on us today can possibly be found in the Rambam in reference to Karbanis. In Marnevuchim and, and the third Chalik in Perak Memvav, um, the Rambam suggests that Karbanis, pagan sacrifices, are actually, sorry, Karbanis, which are sacrifices, are actually sourced in pagan idolatry, and the Torah knew that man would not be able to abandon that form of service because he was so used to it, that the Torah took that existing institution of service, which is Karbanis, which is slaughtering an animal, and adapted it to focus it to God, saying, used to bring sacrifices to idols, now bring sacrifices to God. And the Ram says that really the best form of service is through the mind, through tefillah. But since Karbano's sacrifice was such a part of their psyche of how to serve a God, Hashem didn't want to completely change their nature. He wanted to take that nature and reallocate it towards Torah. So double listening would say the same thing by slavery. He couldn't get, Hashem couldn't get rid of slavery. Now, obviously, Hashem could do whatever he wants, but as the Rambam over there points out, Hashem doesn't want to force man to change his nature. He wants man to incorporate his nature into the service of Hashem. So just like slavery, it would be very difficult to just do away with. So what Hashem did is he slowly weaned them off slavery by first making it a moral institution, and then ultimately he wants us to see through, read between the lines, and eventually eradicate slavery from our Torah. As we mentioned earlier, the push that Reb David had in order to explain slavery in this manner was this concept of Rahman, this concept of mercy. Now, the concept of mercy is a very interesting concept. We have certain acts in, in our lives which, based on the context, the same act could be considered either merciful or non-merciful. Let's talk about hitting somebody. Hitting somebody in general, one would say, is not merciful. Yet there are times when somebody needs to be hit. Let's talk about a, a three-year-old child that runs onto the street. And they're not going to understand the consequences and the possible danger of being hit by a car. Sometimes the only way to teach them would be to hit them, to give them a smack. It should be coming out of love. But that act is one of mercy, even though the child does not understand, even though the child would feel pain. 
We also have with the doctor, doctor giving a shot is a classic example of something which is merciful even though it's painful. So pain and mercy are not necessarily opposites. Right, meaning avoidance of pain to another, empathy for another is not the definition of mercy. Because it's not just the avoidance of a current pain that factors into mercy. There's an avoidance of long-term pain, such in the case of a shot, but there's also an avoidance of pain of a community. So, for example, a mass shooter is on the loose, right? And the police take him down, they shoot him. So now, it doesn't feel nice to get hit by a bullet. Not like I've ever experienced it, but I've been told, you know, it's not fun. Yet, nobody would think that is a cruel act to shoot the mass shooter to stop him. Why? Even though it's painful for the mass shooter, because guess what? It's merciful for the community that is being abused by the shooter. So mercy doesn't mean avoidance of pain at all costs. If we could add one additional point, it's also about a value system. You have a certain value system, and based on that value system, that will also decide what is considered merciful and not. If we talk about punishments for certain acts, let's say talk about stealing. So depending on how bad you consider stealing, or how bad you consider whatever act you do, that would show proportionately how bad the punishment or the consequence should be. That's going to be based on the value system. Now, where do all Jews, or where should all Jews get their value system? That's straight from the Torah. So if Rabdavid is trying to make the point that, that slavery cannot be a Torah value because Torah value is mercy, and this does not fit mercy, he would have to explain how the Torah, the Torah's understanding of slavery is one that does not fit mercy, as we are able to show by all the other uh Avid mitzvahs, how the Torah values themselves show how these are not ideal. Correct. And we're going to get to those sources in a second which show how it's not ideal. So, for example, Eishis Vastar, the Torah says, Dabr Torah connected to Yitzhah. The Torah is only speaking to Yitzhah. By Gittin, the Torah says, The Mizbech sheds tears when a man divorces his first wife. By Tshuva, obviously the Torah does not want you to do an Averis. However, if you lack those sources, if you don't have a source telling you the Torah does not want you doing this, and the only measure that you are using to redefine Torah is how society views pain and society views, views values, well, guess what? I have some more mitzvahs we can add to the list of cruel mitzvahs that perhaps should be eradicated above the slavery that Reb Dabalichzi wants to add. For example, killing a Malik. There's a mitzvah to kill an Amaleki baby. Now, that baby is not going to have fun. It's not going to be fun for you. It's not going to be fun for the Amaleki mother to watch the baby die. Yet it's merciful for the world because it's valuable for the world to not have a Malik because the existence of a Malik in the world is actually a greater form of cruelty because it's immoral. Furthermore, gay marriage, right? Nowadays, you try to suggest that two men cannot get married. That's considered hate speech. Love is love. Love is love. Who would want to stop love? Yet the Torah tells us, that two men getting married is bad enough that they should be stoned. And we could really talk about any any form of, of killing that the Bezdin does for many of the mitzvahs. Uh, let's talk about Shabbos. If you break Shabbos, if you ask any person nowadays based on modern values, is it right for a person to be killed for, for breaking the Sabbath day? It's very rare that you find somebody with a, with a modern sensibility who would say that, yeah, that, that's something I understand. Right, and if you're, if you're generic explanation for what should or shouldn't be in the Torah is what causes pain, and as we know, pain is considered justified by societal morals, 
then again, there is nothing off the table that you can't knock out. So when we're looking at slavery, we cannot use a generic, oh, you wouldn't want to be sold as a slave. Because guess what? If you loved a man, you wouldn't want to not be able to marry him. If you were a Malaki, you wouldn't want to be killed. If you broke Shabbos, you wouldn't want to be killed. That cannot be the measure. The measure is, what does Torah say about slavery? Does Torah suggest that slavery is not okay? Like, for example, the Ramah Marnvuchim, the Barbanel, goes through a whole plethora of sources which show that the Ramah's idea that Kabanis are not the, the primal way of serving Hashem is sourced in Torah. Not only that, as we know, the Rambam holds that Karbanes will be there lost in love. When Mashiach comes, we're going to go back to Karbanes. If Karbanes were inherently immoral, why would we go back to it? We've already been, we've already been weaned off of Adizara. So the Barbanel points out, the Rambam never says it's not moral anymore. The Rambam just says that's the reason why we pick Karbanes. But once Hashem picked Karbanes, there's no source that suggests that Karbanes are not moral right now. So to extend that to slavery wouldn't work anyways. Because there's no source, at least we're going to show, there's no sources that suggest that slavery is immoral in any way, shape, or form in the Torah. So now let's see what Rav David tried to bring as Torah support of the concept that slavery is a non-ideal institution. So the first one that we, we picked out was, he brings in a Rashi in Avaidazar in 17b in Yudzayin Amad Beis, um, which is talking about the the Romans had arrested Rebbe Lazar ben Porta, with, and one of the charges being that he had freed one of his slaves. And Rashi explains that the reason the Romans had made a decree about freeing the slaves is lefishu dasihudis, because this was a, a Jewish custom. Uh, seemingly, the Jewish custom would be to free slaves. Right, it was part of the Jewish religion to free slaves. So you see very clearly that the Jews did not hold of slavery in a similar manner that they did not hold of polygamy, even though it's technically allowed uh, from strict Torah law. Right, so it seems like we have a Torah source which suggests that the Jews had abandoned slavery. How this source suggests that Jews never owned slaves is, is a little bit beyond me. It seems very clear from Rashi that the fact that it's dasihudis to free slaves, even taking Rashi in its simplest form, still would not only not suggest that they didn't own slaves, it actually suggests they did own slaves, and that's how they were able to free them, is because they had slaves. Not only that, there are many Gemaras of post- Ribelezer ben Parta Tanaya, meaning past this stage, which all had slaves. In fact, they're brought by Rebdabal Hussein himself in his podcast, trying to explain how the Tanaim used to treat their slaves. All those Tanaim lived after Rebelezer ben Parta. So if the Jews had succeeded in weaning off this immoral practice, why did it come back in later years and later Tanaim? Now, this Rashi is problematic on many levels anyways, because guess what? There's a mitzvah to never free a non-Jewish slave. So Rashi seems to suggest the Dasyudas was to free the slave. But there's a mitzvah in the Torah. It's a derisa. tavodu. You should always keep and subjugate your non-Jewish slaves. So how did the Dasyudas become to free the slaves? So the Yaivitz actually asked this question. He asked it a little bit differently. He says, why would the Romans go to, why would the Romans decree to not free a slave if the Torah already said you can't free a slave? What's the point of that decree? And he answers, perhaps the Romans didn't know about the Torah's injunction against freeing slaves. Which means he's not learning Rashi that it was a practice to free slaves. He's learning that the Romans made a useless decree because the Jews anyways didn't free slaves. His other answer is that the Romans decreed against freeing a slave even for a Devar Mitzvah, even for a Mitzvah, which is something the Torah does allow. You are allowed to free a slave if you need him for a Mitzvah purpose, such as making a minion like the Gemara says. You can free a slave to make a minion. But the Ivitz clearly interprets Rashi as not talking about that it was a rampant practice to free slaves because that's against the Torah. 
Not only that, there are other Mefarsh Hirash who explain that either we're talking about an every every here, a Jewish slave, or we are talking about a non-Jewish slave. However, the 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 Romans were gozer on freeing a non-Jewish slave using the Torah Lachas how to free him, such as using a document of 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 freedom, which is something the Torah says you have to use when freeing a slave, and the Romans were decreed against that because that's a Jewish practice. But in no way does that suggest that the Torah, that the Jews used to free their slaves rampantly, because again, that is against the Torah. Yeah, another possibility is that the Jews would free their slaves if they lost Rashi Varim, which would be like uh, limbs or tips, even the tip of a finger. And the reason the Romans might have decreed against that is it was the Roman culture with their slaves where they would actually specifically chop off certain limbs or the near in order to mark their slaves or in order to show dominance. That could have also been something that they were geyser on Dasiudis. So I think we can safely say that that is not a good source that suggests in any way that Detarit does not hold of slavery. So what else did he bring? So the next point, and this was really baffling, I, I really have no idea what he was trying to bring from this. He actually brings in the Gemaras uh, referring to Rebbe Gamliel and Tevi, his servant, um, and numerous other Tanaim who had good relationships with their servants, where the servants became almost a part of the household. And he said, you see from here that the Torah, well, it wasn't actually him, it was his guest, um, but he agreed with it, that you see from here that the Torah does not hold of this concept of slavery. But it seems to me that the Torah holds the concept of slavery, but holds that it's possible to have a slave and still have a good relationship, and that the slave could be happy being a slave. Right, and, and the slave became sort of part of the family. I'm saying Rabbi Gamliel, the Gemara says, was overjoyed when he was able to free a slave. That doesn't suggest that slavery is wrong. It suggests that Rabbi Gamliel had a fantastic relationship with his particular slave and saw particular qualities in his slave, and therefore was happy to see him become part of the Jewish nation. It does not suggest that slavery is wrong. In fact, my mother was raised in, in pre-apartheid South Africa. And even post-apartheid apartheid, South Africa, yeah, apartheid, you know, yeshiva education, post-apartheid Africa, and she had what was called live-in maids. Now, live-in maids is a fancier term for slaves that earn a buck a day. However, I remember going there as a little kid on vacation. Those slaves, let's call them, were so much part of the family. They were so happy to be there. They loved hanging out with the family. They loved cleaning. They loved cooking. They were the happiest people ever because they felt part of the family. They felt like they had a role. It didn't matter that they were working for a dollar a day. It didn't matter that they were doing manual labor because they felt respected and they felt part of a family. That, I think, is what the Gemara is trying to stress with the Tanaim's relationship with their slaves. Not that slavery is bad, but that there's a proper way to incorporate a slave into your family system. And this proper way is expressed very beautifully by the Rambam, which is the next source that he attempts to bring in order to show that slavery as an institution is not held of, as opposed to is held of, but can be done morally. Um, now, anybody who listens to this Rambam would have a hard time explaining how it means not to own slaves. The Rambam basically... Say at the end of Hilchus of Adam, this Rambam. Yeah, at the end of Hilchus of Adam. It says that it's mutter, you're allowed to work an Ebed Kanani, Befarach, which basically means useless labor. Uh, with a Jewish slave, you're not allowed to. With a non-Jewish slave, you're allowed to have him do work, which is not um, leading up to any uh, result. You could just have him uh, clean a wall, even if it's already clean, whatever, which seems to be a very cruel thing. And the Raman says that. He says, but it's darche chasidus v'darche chachma. It is, it's proper, and it's a way of, of wisdom. To be a rachaman and a redif tzedek, to be kind and compassionate toward your servant. One of the qualities of a Jew, in fact. 
Yeah, it's one of the three that if you don't find that in a Jew, you should question whether he's actually Jewish if he's not a Rahman. So to look at that Rahman and say, oh, it seems that the Rahman is saying you shouldn't own a slave, as opposed to it's fine to own a slave, but you should be kind to him, seems to be just a complete misreading, a blatant misreading of the Rambam. Now, perhaps one of his strongest points was when he brought in the idea of Sheba Mitzrayim, and he, and he pointed out how the Sheba Mitzrayim, the exile of being in Egypt, was the hardest part of Jewish history, perhaps the most painful part of Jewish history. We were always thanking Hashem for his great kindness in taking us out of the subjugation of, of, of Egypt. So it seems to me that being subjugated is terribly negative, and it's something that we mourn over, and it's something that we celebrate that we got out. So why in the world would we think it's moral that the Torah would hold of doing it to somebody else? So there's a couple of differences between Sheba Mitzrayim and the Sheba that we're talking about here. The first difference is that the Sheba Mitzrayim would be considered immoral if we had done that to the non-Jews. Um, the Sheba Mitzrayim included the murder of babies, total unnecessary cruelty, and all these things, as we saw from the Rambam, are not Torah values and are considered immoral. Being an officer, being cruel, is not, is not moral. The second big difference is that what we had a problem with being slaves was that we were slaves to Mitzrayim. Our purpose is to be slaves to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And when we got freed, it wasn't like Hashem was saying, okay, now you're free to do whatever you want. He was saying, no, you're free from slavery to Mitzrayim, and now you're slaves to me. And that's what we were happy about. Right. We, we are, we're more, more concerned with the fact that we're on the 49th gate of Tuma than we were of the physical abuse. The Jews have always been concerned more about spiritual abuse than the physical abuse. So to draw parallels between the Egyptian servitude and the Jewish idea of slavery of a non-Jew is hardly fair. Because when the Jew enslaves the non-Jew, he is not corrupting his morals. In fact, quite the opposite. The sources suggest that the Jew's responsibility is actually to elevate the non-Jew. And by the non-Jew being in his house, the non-Jew becomes elevated. Now, the last point he meant, the last point he stated was that the Torah values freedom. The Torah recognizes the right of every individual to be free. Now, what does this freedom mean? The Torah does not value freedom. The Torah values control of one's actions and subjugation to morality. It does not value doing whatever you want. It values subjugation. The question is what form of subjugation. But it certainly is not pro-freedom. In fact, this is such a twisted idea of what the Torah value is. The Gemara talks about that when an Evid Ivri, a Jewish slave, when he wants to stay longer than his six-year servitude, it says that the reason, one of the reasons he'd want to stay is because he values the freedom of being a slave. What's right. that freedom? That's the freedom of not having his entire life being controlled by Hashem. Right. There's certain mitzvahs that, a Jew, that every, every doesn't have to keep. In fact, he's latter marry the Shefcha Kanani. He's latter marry the non-Jewish maidservant. He enjoys that. He's not allowed to do that as a, as a free man. So he actually likes the freedom. In fact, talking about Egypt, one of the complaints of Ben Israel to Moshe Rabbeinu in the Midbar was that they missed the days of Egypt where they got food for free. And the Rashi brings the measure over there that it was free from mitzvahs. They were reminiscing about servitude in Egypt because they were free from mitzvahs. The desire to be free is not a Jewish desire. The desire to be free comes from the negative inclination to throw off the yoke of heaven. So subjugation does not necessarily mean less freedom. In fact, it means more freedom, a freedom which the Torah does not approve of. Now, as we've already mentioned, absence of any Torah sources telling us that a specific mitzvah is a bidyavid situation, the running assumption has to be that it's l'chilchila, because if you assume that it's bidyavid, there's tons of modern sensibilities which would redefine the entire Torah's value system. Now, that would be even if we had no sources 
suggesting that slavery was good, but no sources suggesting it was bad, we would still have to assume that it was good. Right, because if you didn't assume that, what you would be doing is you would be taking your morals, which are built by the society around you, and you'd be inflicting it on Tara. Tara tries to correct your morals. When you take your morals and ignore Tara, and don't bring any source from Tara, and try to inflict it on Tara... You come up with a twisted version of Tara, which is just self-serving. Now, when we're trying to think of the, the Ashkaf of the Tara, especially with the mitzvahs, the time and mitzvahs, the reasons, the moral reasons for the mitzvahs, the first place to turn is the Sefer Chinuch. He gives, by each mitzvah, he gives something called the Sharsha Mitzvah, the root of the mitzvah, where he gives the, the moral uh, understanding and how it betters society. Now, how Reb Dovin missed going through the Ashkaf of the Tara, Ashkaf of slavery, how he missed bringing in the Sefer Chinuch is beyond me. That should be the first place you look when you're trying to figure out the Tarashkafa. And when we look there, it's very, very clear what the Tarashkafa on slavery is, and that it's very positive towards non-Jewish being enslaved to Jews to help them fulfill their mission. Right, so the Sefer Chedach is going on the command to never free your slave. He's going on the command to never free your slave. It's Mitzvah 347, Shin Mem Zion. And what does he say over there? He says as follows. He says, the Jews is the highest form of man, and we were created... And we are specifically attuned to being good at serving Hashem. And that is our purpose. Now, if we would free the non-Jewish slave, guess what? Who would have to do our household chores? Who would have to worry about parnasa? Who would have to worry about taking care of, that, of, of, of the physical life, the physical well-being of the family? It would have to be another Jew. And since the Jew is best served and created to only serve Hashem... When you free the non-Jewish slave, you're going to have to take a Jew away from serving Hashem and in towards physical servitude, whether that be the form of a worker or the form of another slave, a Jewish one. The Chassam Seifer gives a similar answer where he suggests that you're not supposed to free slaves because then Hashem will have to create more non-Jews to become your slave. It's a similar idea. What? Right. So we see over here that the Torah is saying that the best role of a non-Jew is to help facilitate the Jew serve Hashem. Which is a very different take than the source we provided by Rav Lifenstein. Because this is an open source suggesting that the reason for Olam Bam Tavodu you should always keep your slave is not simply because that's the best way to help a slave integrate into society as Rav David wanted to suggest. He wanted to suggest that the mitzvah of Olam Bam Tavodu was just a best option for the slave. And I want to talk about that in a second, right? Because if you just free a slave with no abilities, no, uh, who's illiterate, he'll just lose himself in society. So it's a mitzvah for the good of the slave to keep him enslaved. Um, that's not what the Sefer Chinuch says this mitzvah is about. It's not what the Chassam Sefer says the mitzvah is about. What they say the mitzvah is about is that we need non-Jews to be slaves because we need to serve Hashem. We need somebody doing our hard work. We need somebody doing the chores so we can focus on serving Hashem. Now, outside of the fact that this is not what the sources say, I just want to refute Reb David's idea of the reason for Lelem Bem Tavaydu, that you should always work a non-Jewish slave. So Reb David tried to suggest that this was a mitzvah for the benefit of the non-Jew, because if you just free the non-Jew, he won't have a means to make a parnasa. He won't have a means to keep himself out of trouble, and therefore he's best off as a slave because they're not provided with the proper tools. So the terrorist says, don't just release him in the wild. Keep him, groom him, Told he can become a functioning member of society. And he brings a support for this idea. There's a lacha that if a man is ma'anis a woman, if a man abuses a woman, he has to marry her. He cannot divorce her forever. The Torah says that she has the option 
to go free because ultimately this is for the, her good. She has the option to not marry him. But if she does want to marry him because she wants to be taken care of because who wants to marry a girl who got abused? The tire forces the man to take care of her. So he wanted to draw a parallel between these two cases saying the owner has to keep the slave. The husband has to keep married to the wife who he abused. Both for the good of the victim. Now this is a terrible analogy because by the woman, she doesn't have to marry him. If she wants to go free, she can go free. If she wants a divorce, she can get a divorce. The slave cannot go free. In fact, we see Tevi was a perfectly capable slave. He, the Gemara says he was Tamachacham. He was perfectly literate. And yet the only way he went free is either he was freed from a minion or Rebbe Gamaliel accidentally knocked out his eye. But there's no indication that he can just go free. And the Gemara there of David brought that if it's a shnas betzura, if it's a time of famine and you can't feed your slave, you have to free him. That in no way suggests that anytime it's good for him, you can free, uh, free him. It's just that the owner has a requirement to feed him. If he can't meet that, he has to free him. But the Gemara does not suggest that any time you think he can be a function member of society, he's allowed to go free or he has the option to go free. The Torah does not say that. And again, like we saw, the sources say the opposite. And we're going to see more sources as we continue going through it. Furthermore, a non-Jew can even elevate his status by being a slave. You see the Minchas Chinuch says that the way a non-Jew becomes Amisecha, becomes part of your nation, is by being a slave to non-Jew. Uh, to, by being a slave to Jew, excuse me. Additionally, being attached to greatness actually makes you greater. We see that Rashi, Devarim Perak Aleph Pasuk Zion, in the Pasuk Adonar Gadol, he says that the reason the Nar is called Gadol is because it's attached to Eretz Yisrael. And he brings on a Medrash which says, Eved Melech Melech. That's the way people talk. A slave of a king is a king. You're part of the royalty. You ever seen a butler and a, you know the butler that is pride to be part of the royal family? They take that as a personal identity. They're part of the royal family. You can be part of the Jewish nation, part of the Jewish family, by becoming a slave. Now, one of the ways we see the Torah Shkafa uh, and especially the ideal, what the Torah views as an ideal, is to see what, what the Torah says is going to happen in Lasad Lavai. Because that's an ideal world. That's when you don't have Yitzhahar anymore. Everything's happening exactly the way it's supposed to. Nothing's Bidiyavet. Everything's Lachachila. So what exactly is the Torah's Ashkafa on slavery, Lasad Lavai? Is there going to be slavery or not? According to Rabbi David, there definitely should not be slavery then. Right, because supposedly we had advanced morally up to a point where we don't need slaves anymore. We don't need that institution. It hasn't been around for thousands of years. Based on the way I understand it, if you, if Reb David was correct, the litmus test, if he's correct, is, is there going to be slavery loss of love? If there is slavery loss of love, you cannot anymore say that it's a Bidiyavid institution. Like we saw with the Barbanel saying by the Ram and Karbanis saying the Ram cannot hold that Karbanis was Bidiyavid because we are going to have sacrifices loss of love. Now, if you look at the Munis Videos, which is Rishadigon's book on Ashkafa, in Maimer Ches, in the eighth uh, treatise, Rishadigon describes the role of non-Jews Las Lavo. And he says, the greater the non-Jew, the closer of a slave he is to the Jew. The greatest of the non-Jews will work in the houses of the Jews. The less great of the non-Jews will work in the, in the cities, in the municipalities. And the lowest form of the non-Jew who still made the bar of making Las Lavo will work in the fields. And this is based on a Pasuk in Yishayo, which says, V'amdu zarem v'rot tzainchem. It's a Pasuk in Yishayo, talking about the future, and says, V'amdu zarem, strangers will get up, v'rot tzainchem, they'll be pasturing your field. And the Shadigon says, that's the lowest form of the non-Jew who will eventually be your slave, Lasalavi. Not only that, in Kehelis Rabbah, the Medrash says openly that the Umas will be 
our slaves lost lovey. In fact, there's a pasuk in Yael, in Paragamal pasuk Bays, which says lost lovey bayam mehem eshbach ruchi. Uh, on the slaves and the maidservants in those days, I will spill my spirit. That's talking about Lassa Lavi. The Radak says that since the non-Jew will be serving the Jew and serving their troll, he will actually gain a ruach, a spirit of, of das, of intelligence, in order to meet that role. I think the strongest uh, proof is the Gemara in Sanhedrin and Saudi Alephim and Bays. Where Ula asks a contradiction with two psukim, and the way he answers it is one is talking about Jews and one is talking about non-Jews. The specifics don't matter. But the Gemara asks on that, says, non-Jews, what are non-Jews doing? What are they doing with us? All you need is Jews. And the Gemara answers, the only reason non-Jews are going to be there is in order to be our slaves. And it quotes this Pasuk in Yeshayahu, is in order to be our servants. But I'm Duzar and I'm right. Very good. And not only that, but the idea of slavery is not bad. We are slaves to Hashem. We serve Hashem. Our whole day is compelled by Hashem. There's not a moment or a day to ourselves. Every act we do, we have to do in accordance with the Lacha, in accordance with the will of the ultimate master Hashem. So why is it so bad for the non-Jews to also be part of Zerun Hashem and their role be slightly different? Yes. Instead of taking care of the spiritual aspect of the world, which is what the Jew, as Sefer Chenech says, it's a Jew's role, they care they take care of the physical aspect. But again, both of us are just doing Ratzon Hashem. And somebody might ask, well, okay, well, at least you have free will. You can choose to follow Hashem or you can choose to not. Well, the punishments described in the Torah, going to Gehenim or being killed by if one Bezdin is around, those options are also available to a slave. Right. The slave can go away and be killed. You can't compel anybody to do anything. I mean, you can point a gun in his head, but you can choose death. So what's a worse punishment? We have to keep Shabbos, otherwise we either get killed in this world or killed in the next world. An eternal killing, a spiritual killing, which is much worse. Or the slave, you can either serve the master or you can die. Either way, we're being compelled. And I if also if pointed, being more compelled, yeah. it'll be us. Right, we have much more commandments. Now, I pointed this out to a friend recently. There's an idea of a melech in Judaism, in the Torah. Now, a melech can tell his people to do anything he wants, and they have to do it. And if they don't do it, they die. Essentially, we're all slaves to the king. If he wanted, he can get us working all day for him. So the idea of a slave is clearly not an anathema to the Torah. In fact, it is something the Torah clearly not only gives us approval for, but holds that this is the primal way to operate as a human being, is to be subjugated to morality, to be subjugated for good. Now, for the Jew, that's to be directly subjugated to Hashem. For the non-Jew, that's to be subjugated to the Jew, who's directly subjugated to Hashem, which makes the non-Jew ultimately subjugated directly for Hashem. Now, just ask yourself this question. Do you really think it's better for the non-Jew to be hanging out in some club on Friday night or helping the Jew keep his Friday night meal? I mean, think about it. Think about it from a terror perspective. What do you think is the higher form of man? To be dancing at a club somewhere, taking drugs, drinking alcohol, or getting a Gemara for Avram Avinu, to be Eliezer Evid Avram? Who was a higher form of man? In fact, the Medrash says about Eliezer, even though he's from Canaan, which is considered a cursed nation, through being a servant to Avram, he became Baruch. He became blessed. So in conclusion, I think we have sufficiently demonstrated that the Torah does hold of slavery. Not only does it hold of slavery for the Jew to Hashem, it holds of slavery for the non-Jew to the Jew, so that the Jew can serve Hashem. And this is not a negative concept. This is, in fact, the way not only the Jew reaches his completion... But the non-Jew also reaching completion. We saw that he actually gained status. We saw that this is his key to loss and love. Now, at the same time, we did see the Ram who says you shouldn't abuse a slave. 
Because being cruel to a slave is not okay. Because again, all you need him is to help you serve Hashem. There's no excuse to be cruel to him. Which is why the Ram says, don't do a by disparach. Now this could be a reason why we don't have slavery anymore. Because everything's run by Ashkach Bratis. Hashem runs the world. Now, the world right now, I do not think is qualified for slavery. Not only are Jews not taking care of their time properly, and if a Jew's not taking care of time properly to serve Hashem, so by him subjugating a non-Jew for his nonsense, he's now forcing a non-Jew to be part of his rebellion against Hashem and not serving Hashem. So that's clearly wrong. But furthermore, the institution of slavery in today's world, I think, would be abused and would not be used for its proper purpose. It would not give freedom to the non-Jew. It would not allow the non-Jew to express his morality, his spirituality, by involving himself in the holy work of the Jew servant Hashem. And that's why perhaps that's why perhaps Hashem arranged the world in a way that it doesn't exist anymore. All right, that concludes this edition of Jewish Thought Flow. If you liked it, please share with your friends. If you didn't like it, please share with your friends. If you'd like to report us to the FCC for hate speech, please don't. For any questions, comments, or concerns, you know where to reach us at jewishthoughtflow at gmail.com. Please subscribe. Please listen again. Peace.